Well, we rely on personal experience for a lot of things. The reason most adults don't spend their time touching hot stoves is because they know, most times from experience, that they're going to get burnt. Our little daughter, Olivia, for whatever reason, has taken a fascination with the oven and wants to play with it or explore, which, of course, is a bad thing. And she does pretty good when we tell her no, but, but you never know. For some kids, they just won't learn until they feel the heat. They just need that personal experience. Personal experience also usually guides us in our daily choices, like, like what, what restaurant you're going to go to. You don't need to do research every time you want to pick a restaurant in the evening. You know from experience what's good, what's bad, what you like, what you don't, and that's usually enough to guide your choice. But relying on personal experience isn't always a good thing. Sometimes it can get you into trouble. One Christian study shows that most parents, 60%, rely on their own experiences growing up for parental guidance. But only 20% say they receive guidance from the Bible. And only 14% say they're even familiar with what the Bible says about parenting. Also, only 15% look to the church for parenting guidance. 96% say they want to be better parents. But they don't welcome outside guidance. Basically, the parents say they will do it their way, which ironically is what their children are saying to them. Our past experiences are not always good and reliable sources of truth or right and wrong. Furthermore, there are severe limitations on personal experience when it comes to finding the truth. For these experiences are often unverifiable, unrepeatable. Your eyes can play tricks on you. Your ears can play tricks on you. Your mind can play tricks on you, especially late at night. Especially when it comes to the miraculous. It's very hard to prove your experience to other people. And therefore, for most purposes, it is unprofitable. The Apostle Paul knew this, actually. Something happened to Paul early on as a Christian. Whether it was real or just a vision, he, he didn't know for sure. But he relates, he was, he says, caught up to heaven. He saw heavenly glory. He heard heavenly glory. And surely such an experience left all possible doubts in his mind behind. God was real. Jesus was real. Heaven was real. And, and he experienced it firsthand while living. But all throughout his ministry... Paul never told anyone about this experience. It was only when his apostleship was attacked that he reluctantly told people about this experience, but even still he didn't exp explicitly say that it was him who, who had experienced these things. And so why is this? Why wasn't he throwing this experience around right and left? It's because he knew the limitations of personal experience. At least with his Damascus Road conversion experience, other people were there who could verify things. But with this heavenly vision, he knew it was unverifiable, unrepeatable, incomprehensible, and for most purposes, unprofitable. So he just kept it to himself. Experience has its limitations. It can even be problematic when a person's supposed experience contradicts Scripture. When that happens, what wins? What has more authority? Let's say you've got a young Christian guy and he wants to marry an unbelieving girl. He says to himself, well, I know the Bible says you're not supposed to marry unbelievers, but, I mean, this just feels so right. How, how can it be wrong? I just know she's the one for me. So this, this must be God's will, right? See, his personal experience has told him that he's supposed to marry this girl, but God's word says otherwise. So when that happens, what, what should he listen to? What wins in that conflict? There are many situations like this where a person's experience tells them to do something contrary to Scripture. And when that happens, what wins? Personal experience or Scripture? What has more authority? This question is relevant now. It was relevant back in the first century. 
The apostle Peter was dealing with an influx of false teachers into the churches when he wrote 2 Peter. In fact, now, if you have your Bibles, take them, open them, almost to the very end, to the book of 2 Peter. Open your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1. He's dealing with this influx of false teachers, and these men were hugely immoral and greedy and selfish. Their only concern was to profit themselves by feeding off of the churches. Yet they knew the scriptures spoke against their lifestyle, so they just denied the scriptures. They spoke against the apostles, who at that time were giving the verbal word of God, and they spoke against the prophets of old, who had given the the written word of God at the time, the Old Testament. They claimed that these people, the apostles and prophets, they were just making it up to suit their agenda. In reality, the exact opposite was the case, and Peter will expose these false teachers as false in chapter 2 through their their godless lifestyle. But first, here at the end of chapter 1, he takes up a defense, a defense of his testimony, the apostles, and that of the prophets of old as well. He defends the word of God. They're not making their message up. These aren't just well-conceived myths like the false teachers were claiming. But they are truly speaking from God. Specifically, the apostles are not making up their teaching concerning the return of Christ. That's the specific issue that he's dealing with. The false teachers had recently taken upon themselves to also deny the return of Jesus to judge as king. It's kind of hard to preach judgment when you're living such an immoral lifestyle, so the false teachers just denied it. But Peter strongly defends this truth and testifies that Jesus is indeed returning to judge the world, to rescue the godly. But how does Peter know this? How does he know that Jesus is really going to return? Is it just his word versus the word of these other false teachers? And who's to say that he's right and they're wrong? Who's to say that? How can he speak with authority? And that's an age-old question. Peter addresses this at the end of chapter 1 in verses 16 through 21. Last time, we looked at verses 16 through 18. And in these verses, we learn that his confidence in the return of Christ comes from his personal experience. How does he know that Christ is returning? Well, first, he says, by way of personal experience, experience. I mean, he was there with Jesus on the holy mountain. We talked about this. He saw Jesus, remember, transfigured. He was there at the transfiguration. He saw Jesus changed into glory. He heard the voice of God himself authenticating Jesus as the divine messianic king. Peter knew firsthand, as did the other apostles, who Jesus was And that, indeed, he was returning as that divine king. But then in our passage for today, verses 19 through 21, Peter gives us an even stronger reason for the return of Christ, a stronger reason for his assurance. You see, he knew that Christ was returning from personal experience, but there's something more than that. He says something even more sure, more certain, than that amazing experience. And that would be Scripture. The testimony of Scripture itself, he says, is even more certain than that amazing personal experience. Indeed, for all things, the greatest authority we have is God's Word. Nothing else is more sure. And that's a lesson we're going to learn today. When it comes to the return of Christ, or any teaching, God's voice in Scripture is as certain as it gets. And so what we have today in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 is a very significant portion of Scripture itself. You know, originally he was writing against false teachers to support the return of Christ, but his words to the churches really rise and go above and beyond that. And we find actually one of the strongest statements concerning 
the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture itself. The written word of God is more sure than any other thing. So when you want the truth and when you want guidance, you you turn to the word. We're going to learn about this. So read along with me as we read our passage today. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 19 through 21. He continues by saying, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. This is indeed a classic text in the Bible itself. We're not going to be ignoring Peter's concern about defending the return of Christ. But I really want to focus in on what he says about God's word itself. And so from this passage, I want us to learn about three aspects of God's word so that you might have a high view of the word. Three aspects of God's word so that you might have a high view of the word the first aspect is this, the character of the word. The character of the word. Look at the beginning of verse 19 again. He begins and says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now first things first, what does he mean by the prophetic word? Well here he's referring to the entire Old Testament. Sometimes the Jews referred to the prophets And they had in mind the explicitly prophetic books, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. But you have to remember that to the Jews, they viewed all of Scripture as prophetic and would sometimes refer to all of it as the prophetic word. Paul, for example, at the end of Romans, he refers to the entire Old Testament as the Scriptures of the prophets. And that's what Peter's doing. The prophetic word here is the Old Testament If Peter has anything truly specific in mind, it would be all of those predictive prophecies concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament. All of Scripture was seen as prophetic, meaning it came from God's prophets, but certain portions of Scripture were prophetic in the sense of being predictive. They predicted the future. In the Old Testament, there are tons of passages predicting and detailing the first and second comings of the Messiah. You remember Luke 24? If you want, you can turn there. If not, you can follow along. It's Jesus after the resurrection, and he intercepts these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And they don't know who he is at first. He kind of disguises himself. They can't. He, their eyes are not able to see who he really is. And he's talking to them. He basically tells them that they should not have been so surprised at the death and even resurrection of the Messiah. And why not? Because these things, they were written about a long time ago. They they should have known. And let me read for you what Jesus tells these two guys. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And of course, it was necessary because scripture had to be fulfilled. Verse 27. (coughs) Then (coughs) Then beginning with Moses... And with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. In all the scriptures. Not just the major prophets, not just the minor prophets, but the entire Old Testament. He explained to them all those passages about his first coming, his second coming. Later, Jesus appears to his main disciples, the regular guys, 
He tells them something similar. If you're there, you can look at verse 44 in Luke 24. He's talking to his main disciples. He says to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The disciples, they they get a pass because at the time, their minds were prevented from seeing and rightly understanding these things. But but now it's plain to see. <clears throat> the Bible is replete with testimony concerning the first and second comings of the Messiah. Just think about this. The Old Testament is absolutely full with these predictive prophecies concerning the Messiah. All of these were written between 700 and 1,500 years before Jesus was even born. But he fulfilled them all. These predictions that are so numerous and so specific, there's no chance that they could have been fulfilled by one person accidentally. And I want to I want to read you some just to give you an example. So you know what I'm talking about. You know how, how significant this fact is. I'm going to read you a short list of messianic prophecies. They're from all over the Old Testament, scattered around, but they were all fulfilled specifically and literally by Jesus himself. Listen along to this. I'm just going to read. Bear with me, but follow along this this list of messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. The Messiah would be born of a woman. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. The Messiah would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. The Messiah would be heir to King David's throne. The Messiah's throne would be anointed and eternal. The Messiah would be called Emmanuel. The Messiah would spend a season in Egypt. A massacre of children would happen at Messiah's birthplace. A messenger would prepare the way for Messiah. The Messiah would be rejected by his own people. The Messiah would be a prophet. The Messiah would be preceded by Elijah. The Messiah would be declared the Son of God. The Messiah would be called a Nazarene. The Messiah would bring light to Galilee. The Messiah would speak in parables. The Messiah would be sent to heal the brokenhearted. The Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah would be called king. The Messiah would be praised by little children. The Messiah would be betrayed. The Messiah's price money would be used to buy a potter's field. The Messiah would be falsely accused. The Messiah would be silent before his accusers. The Messiah would be spat upon and struck. The Messiah would be hated without cause. The Messiah would be killed with with criminals. The Messiah would be given vinegar to drink. The Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. The Messiah would be mocked and ridiculed. The soldiers would gamble for Messiah's garments. The Messiah's bones would not be broken. The Messiah would be forsaken by God. The Messiah would pray for his enemies. The soldiers would pierce Messiah's side. The Messiah would be buried with the rich. The Messiah would resurrect from the dead. Messiah would ascend to heaven. The Messiah would be seated at God's right hand. Messiah would be a sacrifice for sin. That's a list of 44 specific messianic prophecies, all specifically and literally fulfilled by Jesus. And that's a short list. There are over 350 specific prophecies like this all fulfilled by Jesus. And we asked last time, you know, why should you believe the Bible as being a divine book from God, that truly God's words? And there are many reasons, but but hello. Last time I checked, humans don't have the ability to see this far and this specifically into the future. The overwhelming and uncontestable flood of already fulfilled prophecies, some of the strongest evidence that the Bible is indeed God's word. This is what Peter calls the prophetic word. This is the prophetic word. Now, back to Second Peter here. Remember, Peter is specifically talking about and defending the doctrine of Christ and his second coming to judge the world. And so look, you have all these prophecies concerning the first coming 
of the Messiah, and they were all literally and specifically fulfilled. So what does that tell you about all those prophecies of the Messiah's second coming? They're going to be fulfilled in the exact same way. In other words, the point he's making is, the second coming, it's certain. It is sure. In fact, he says, it is more sure. And that's his point in verse 19. Look at verse 19 again. He writes, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Or, the translation might read, we have the more sure prophetic word. And here in verse 19, there's actually some interpreting to do because there are two different ways to translate this phrase from the Greek. Some translations like the NSB say we have the prophetic word made more sure. And other translations, like the, the footnote in the NSB, say we have the more sure prophetic word. Now you might be thinking, oh, well, there's not a big difference between the two. What, what's the big deal here? And the wording isn't terribly different, but there's a big difference in the significance between those two translations. And so let me fill you in on what's at stake with these two different translations here. If you go with the first option, you translate the Greek as, we have the prophetic word made more sure. The implication is that Peter's experience of the transfiguration, what he was just talking about, gives us greater assurance that scripture is true. In other words, this verse would be teaching that experience is more sure, more reliable than scripture itself. But if you go at the second option and translate the Greek as, we have the more sure prophetic word, the implication is that scripture's testimony is even more reliable than Peter's amazing experience. It's pretty much the exact opposite. Here, Peter would be saying that Scripture's testimony concerning Christ is even more reliable than what he saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears. So in a sense, if you go with option one, you have experience being placed above Scripture. If you go with option two, you have Scripture being placed above experience when it comes to authority and reliability. So do you get that a little bit? Do you see the stakes, what, what the significance is between these two different translation options? So which one is it, we ask? We've got to do a little bit of digging, and I'm going to help you with that. Now, got to get a little bit technical here, so, so bear with me, but it's worth it, and it's very important to do so. Now, thankfully, the, the original Greek word order, the context And what we know about the apostles makes it pretty clear. The best option here is we have the more sure prophetic word. If you're taking notes, write that down. We have the more sure prophetic word. First, word order in Greek, it's not everything, but it is something. And this verse literally reads, we have the more sure prophetic word. The word made It's not in the original. It was added by some translators. It's possible to translate this verse as we have the prophetic word made more sure. But it's certainly the less natural of the two readings. Second, understanding Peter to be saying that his experience trumps scripture, it doesn't fit the context of this verse at all. There's no transition word in verse 19 like therefore showing that Peter is is using this verse to support his personal experience. Verse 19 does not strengthen the case of his personal experience from verses 16 through 18. Instead, it diminishes it. He says later that we should pay attention to, not not to his experience, but to the word. He's propping up the word, not his experience. Nothing indicates that he is 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 bolstering his personal experience with verse 19, but rather he's superseding his experience with Scripture. Now, so the context goes against saying we have the prophetic word made more sure. And then third, it is true that the transfiguration experience really did have an impact on the disciples. 
But you've got to remember that for the apostles and all the Jews, they never saw their experiences as confirming the Old Testament, but just the other way around. They looked to the Old Testament to confirm, to verify what they were experiencing. In other words, they consistently relied on Scripture as the authority, and they evaluated reality according to Scripture. Remember, in all their writings, their strongest arguments come from quoting Old Testament prophecy. Just look at Peter's sermons in Acts. The main point, his main thrust, doesn't come from his experience, but from Old Testament prophecies. There is assurance in personal experience, but there is absolute assurance in the prophetic word. So for all these reasons, it's best to take this as we have the more sure prophetic word. You get that? We have the more sure prophetic word. Now, I know we kind of labored that longer than we normally do, but it really is significant to do that little bit of groundwork because now think about the implications of that. We have the more sure prophetic word. Peter, he just referenced this most amazing personal experience, the transfiguration. I mean, he saw Jesus transfigured into glory on that mountain. He heard the voice of God himself authenticate Christ as messianic king. I mean, what what better proof is there? I mean, you want proof that Jesus is that messianic king? He saw it. He heard it. Is there any better proof than that personal experience? Yes. That's his whole point. Yes, there is. As amazing as that personal experience was, there's something more sure. There's something more certain than that experience when it comes to to proof, to truth, to authority. What is it? We have the, in comparison to that, we have the more sure prophetic word. The scriptures, the written word. Wow, do you get that? What does this tell you about the word? It tells you that it is authoritative and sufficient. And this brings us to the first aspect of scripture that we want to learn here, that the character of the word, God's word that the Bible, it's authoritative and it's sufficient. It's authoritative and it's sufficient. It trumps all things. It's a sufficient source of truth that does not need human confirmation. It's more sure than anything else we know because it comes from God, who is the creator of all things, who knows all things. Like Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, he said to God, your word is truth. If you ever want some assurance in believing the Bible to be God's word, well, just just believe what Jesus believed because he certainly believed in Scripture as God's word. And I choose to believe what he believed. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, verse 160, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The point, it's pretty simple, but the implications are huge. God's word is to be accepted as the authority on truth. It's our most reliable, most authoritative source of truth. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you regard the scriptures in that way? Do you turn to God's word when you want truth? And then do you accept it as truth? It's so important, for, especially for those who claim to follow God, that they heed his word as authoritative. And you know why it's, it's so important today, especially? As is no surprise to you today, especially more and more people are contradicting God's word in so many ways. I mean, just take just take morality, for example. Well, what's happening today? Evil is being called 
good. Wrong is being called right. What God has defined as sinful is now being celebrated by our culture. Things like adultery, greed, homosexuality, abortion, drunkenness. Just go down the list. So truly, a line is drawn in the sand. What are you going to accept as your authority for truth, for right and wrong? What the world says, what others experience, or what God says? That's just one example. There's many examples in different categories. But but especially those who profess to follow God, you have to understand, if you're going to follow him, that involves submitting to his word and accepting it as the authority. It doesn't matter if every last person in the world turns against God and the Bible. His word stands because his word is, what? More sure. It's more sure than any other thing. Therefore, you need to stand and rest on the scriptures. You need to make them the authority in your life. For it is in them that we find truth on life and new life and eternal life. So first, do not miss the character of the word. Secondly now, the second aspect of the word that we want to learn from this passage, the function of the word. Secondly now, the function of the word from the rest of verse 19. Speaking of this more sure word, he tells these believers that they would do well to pay attention to it. Look at verse 19 again. He says, So we have, really, the more sure prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. God's word being authoritative, being sufficient, should not be ignored. The false teachers were the ones ignoring the Bible, but for those who seek to follow and honor Christ, heeding God's word is a must. It's not optional. If you call yourself a Christian, if you follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've placed your trust in him for forgiveness, for redemption, for salvation, for eternal life, if you've been born again by grace through your faith in him, then adhering to his word is just a must. It's how you come to life. It's how you grow. Peter knew that. Remember from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, he says this. He says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of, of what? Of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I mean, the word, is, it's your life. It's your source of life and growth. So are you paying attention to the word? Are you taking interest in it? Are you relying on it for truth? Do you, do you read it even? Are you studying it, searching it? Do you want to know it? Do you have a hunger for this word? When you want to know what to do, how to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord, are you turning not to the world, not to your experience, but to the word? I related earlier that survey about parenting. Only 20% of Christian parents surveyed say they turn to the Bible for guidance on parenting. And then only 14% say they're even familiar with what the Bible says about parenting. That's crazy. You think you'd want to know what the perfect Heavenly Father says about parenting. And you think you'd want to listen to it Because his word, it's more sure than your experience. And what do you think is more authoritative and useful? What you learned from your parents about parenting, which could be good or bad, versus what God says about parenting. And since the word is more sure, the point here, he says, is pay attention to it. You need to listen to it. So for the parents or grandparents even in the room, it's not an option. If you want to seek to honor God in your parenting, learn what his word says, 
put it into practice. And this applies to all of you in all different categories, from parenting to finances to your studies to your work to your relationships to your spiritual relationship with the Lord. The word functions as a guide. And you would do well to pay attention to it. That is the function of the word. It guides you. It lights your way. In fact, Peter next, to drive this point home, he gives us a metaphor. Verse 19. He says, again, you would do well to pay attention to the more sure word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You know, in the ancient world, there is no electricity. Surprise, surprise. And so they they relied on this ancient technology to give them light. It's called a lamp. They, back then in their homes at nighttime, since they had no light, they took these earthenware, you know, these clay vessels. It kind of looked like a, just think of like a magic genie lamp. Had a hole in the middle. They would put oil inside, usually olive oil. Another hole in the end. They would put a wick in there, light on fire, and there you go. Got yourself a lamp. It's really foreign to us. You don't know much about this unless you have an oil-burning lamp yourself. I'm not sure if you know this, but nighttime is very dark. And I'm actually being serious. We take this for granted. We are so used to city lights at nighttime and electricity, we, we forget nighttime is really dark. And if you were here just a couple weeks ago, you know what I'm talking about. Remember the blackout? Just a couple weeks ago here in the Central Coast, we had that blackout. And you probably thought to yourself, it's really dark. I don't remember the last time it was this dark. The blackout was really bad timing for us because it hit on our second night in our new home. And that's not good. I was trying to do some unpacking. All of a sudden, the lights went out and it was pitch black. I remember looking out the window across the way to Arroyo Grande and it was just pitch black. It was eerie looking. Inside, though, our house was far worse because it was like a, a minefield of, of boxes and power tools, and, and we couldn't see anything. Furthermore, we had no idea where the candles were or where the flashlights were. It was just in boxes somewhere. So we were digging through boxes. We finally found one little candle and a lighter, and that little candle gave us just enough light to make our way to the bedroom. We're like, forget it. We just went to bed. But let me tell you, when you're in darkness like that, you really appreciate a lamp. And here in Second Peter, he says the word is the lamp. God's word is the lamp. What does the lamp of the word do? Well, it gives light in a dark place. And the dark place is the world. Since the fall, the world has become a place of spiritual darkness Immorality, sin, death. And the word is the lamp that brings light in the darkness and to the darkness. Now it's true, those in the world, they hate the light. They love the darkness. That's what John 3.19 says. But for us who have been transferred to the light by the God who himself is light, 1 John 1.5, we now aim to walk in the light. And to do that, we need a lamp. And so we, we come now to love the lamp. We want it. We need the lamp. In the world, there is darkness. I mean, spiritually, it's, it's pitch black out there. So, so how are you going to survive? How are you going to walk? How are you going to manage to please the Lord? You need a lamp to guide you. And that lamp is the Word. The lamp is the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know that. The word is a lamp. And like Peter says, you would do well to pay attention to it in this world of spiritual darkness. And this this is the function of the word. Our second point, the function of the word. It's a lamp. It's a guide. It guides us, illuminating the way that we might know how to follow God in this world. However, Peter ends verse 19 by reminding us that this function of the word is not needed forever. Do you see that? He says you only need to pay attention to the lamp of the word until 
The day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. You know, when the sun rises, or in the case of a blackout, when the lights go back on, everybody blows out their candles, you turn off your flashlights, and it's it. These small lights are not needed when the big light comes out, you know, the sun. When the sun comes out, everyone puts away their lamps. And so it is with the prophetic word. Again, Peter's referring to the second coming of Christ in glory. And when that happens, you won't need to pay attention to the prophetic word anymore. You, you can put the lamp away. You need now only pay attention to the Son, the Son of God, who will bring light to the world, who comes as the light. He says, The dawning of the day that looks forward to that future day, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. And the morning star, that's a reference to Jesus himself. The word in the Greek for morning star literally means light bringer. It actually doesn't refer to a star. It refers to Venus or another planet in alignment. You know, back then, they paid a lot more attention to the stars than we do. And they noticed that Venus or another planet in alignment reflected the light of the sun while the sun was still just below the horizon. And as the sun got closer and closer to rising, that morning star would get brighter and brighter. And so the morning star, as it got brighter, it was basically announcing that the daylight, it's almost here. The dawn, just around the corner. That's the morning star. And that's Jesus. He is both the light bringer and the light himself. And with his coming comes the last day. As you apprehend and anticipate the return of Christ in your hearts, as you are assured of that coming day when he does return, you will be among those transformed into his perfect reflection and made into the image of his glory. You won't need the lamp of the prophetic word to guide you anymore because you'll be staring at its fulfillment. For now, though, we still live in the world of darkness, so let us not get ahead of ourselves. We still need the lamp. It is still dark, and we still need the lamp to guide our way. So follow, heed, and pay attention to the more sure word. Make sure that it is functioning as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Well, lastly now, we have the third aspect of the word we want to find here, and that is, thirdly, the origin of the word, verses 20 and 21, the origin of the word. <coughs> Peter continues his defense against the false teachers by asserting the divine origin of the word. Look at verse 20 one more time. He says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Know first of all, he says, of utmost importance, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And what exactly does he mean by that? It depends on what, uh, how you take one's own to mean, because it's a little bit vague. Some take this to mean that Peter is saying that no individual has the freedom or the power to interpret Scripture. No individual can determine what Scripture means. That power is reserved for the church. Only the church can define what Scripture means. However, that uh, interpretation does not fit the context at all here, nor is that taught anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere at all does he talk about the readers and their ability to interpret Scripture. He's talking about the prophets and their ability to write Scripture. The verb used here, the word for one's own, indicates source. So to put this in simpler terms, he's not talking about how one understands Scripture, but the origin of Scripture. The whole context here is the origin of Scripture. And so first, negatively, he says that Scripture did not originate through the prophet's interpretation. The prophet, that's the subject here. The NIV gets the sense of this well, which says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about 
by the prophet's own interpretation of things. You have to remember, in the Old Testament, the prophets, they were given a sign or a vision, a dream. And then they were given the interpretation of that, that vision. And he's saying that that interpretation, they didn't just create themselves. The point is, the prophets, what they spoke, what they wrote down, they weren't just making it up. Now, it's true. Anyone can say that they are speaking for God. I mean, right? Anybody can claim that they're a prophet, that they're a teacher, and that they are speaking from God. Anybody. So is there some safeguard against this? Well, in the Old Testament, God knew that there would be false teachers and false prophets, and so he gave them a safeguard against false teachers. And what is it? Well, according to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 21, a prophet who speaks without being commanded by God, shall be put to death. And then how do you determine who these false prophets are? Well, the litmus test is if the word which they speak does not come true. Someone claims to be speaking from God, and what they say does not come true, that is predictive, they're a false prophet, and the penalty was death. This was God's safeguard against false teaching in scripture. That's how important, by the way, his word is. But this is a strong dividing line in the sand, which in turn validates the Bible. I mean, no other ancient writing possesses the authenticating witness of countless fulfilled prophecies like the Bible. We already looked at 44 of them. These prophets of old did speak truth from God. And to the contrary, it was the false prophets and the false teachers who were making things up to further themselves. The message of the false prophets did not come from God. And Peter's assertion here that the biblical prophets of old and today were not making their message up, but speaking from God. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The key word in this verse is moved by, the word pharaoh in the Greek. It's actually used twice in verse 21. He says, no prophecy was ever made, pharaoh, by an act of human will, but men moved by pharaoh, the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And the word itself has great imagery. It means to be carried along, like a ship being carried along by the wind, the wind in its sails. In old ships, they had no power to move themselves. They they could float, they could steer, but without the wind, I mean, they're dead in the water. The wind was their power. And when it comes to the writing of Scripture, human will was not the power. It was not the wind. Rather, it was the Holy Spirit's will. The Holy Spirit provided the wind in their sails, the power for them to write and to speak from God. The human writers of scripture were carried along by the Spirit. Some would say superintended with the Spirit guiding them and empowering them to write the very words of God free from error. So we find that God the Spirit is the active driving force behind scripture. Like we learned earlier, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. He breathed it out. However, understand that although the Holy Spirit is active in the formation of Scripture, so is man. Man is also active. It's not an either-or, but a both-and. For although prophecy did not originate with human will, it was still men moved by the Spirit who spoke from God. Their role, even though the Spirit was empowering them, their role was still active. It says that the Holy Spirit used men, not instruments, to form Scripture. The Spirit chose different people from different eras, different backgrounds, different walks of life, different talents, different education levels, different vocabularies, and he brought them all together to form still the written word of God. The prophets are like different ships with different sails, different boats, yet the same wind carries them all to the same destination. So you have to understand the human role in Scripture, but still... The Bible is not a human book. 
the Bible is a divine book. Although God used human authors, the words are his because his breath, his wind, that the Spirit carried them along. And this brings us to the third, the final aspect of Scripture we were learning about, the origin of Scripture, namely divine. Scripture has a divine origin. It's another very simple point, but it has huge implications. I mean, do you believe that the Bible is truly divine? That it is rightly called God's Word? Now that means to disregard what the Bible says is to disregard what God says. To go against what the Bible says is to go against what God says. But to follow Scripture is to follow God. We are called Berean Bible Church for a reason. And by no means do we worship the Bible itself, but we rightly understand that our knowledge and access to God comes through his word because he has revealed himself and his will through it. So how could we ignore his testimony? A lot of churches do that. Today they are ignoring the word. And that's the fast track to going astray. The same applies in your own individual lives. You know, we say here that the Bible is our middle name. And that should be true for yourself. God's word should be this comprehensive, controlling influence in your life. From the character to the function to the origin of the word. We learn again and again, it's it's your authority. It's your God-given authority to guide you in life. So whatever you experience, whatever other people say, make certain that you submit ultimately to the authority and sufficiency of the word. Make certain that you accept as truth ultimately what God's word says. And then make certain that you live in a worthy manner, worthy of Christ who, as Peter would remind us, is returning as king. Use the word, rely on it, live by it while you can. Because we won't do that forever. One day, the day we wait for, we're going to put down the written word and we're going to behold the living word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do indeed cherish your word. Your word, we confess, is truth. And we don't worship it. We worship you and your son, but we see you. We know you through it. That is how you have seen fit to reveal yourself. We worship Christ, who himself is the divine logos, the divine word. And we praise him for for the debt he paid for our sins. We, we aim to remember that now as we turn to a time of, of communion. We want to remember the, the death of Christ, which we find in the word. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for us. And may we follow you through your word. I pray all of us here take away just a higher view of your word today that we might seek it, study it, learn it, read it, live by it, all to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.